Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Greetings and salutations, my creative brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast, where we talk to the world's most creative people. I'm your host, Sourdough, your faithful, trusty, loyal, tireless host, coming at you from Crew West Studio in Los Angeles. Man, do we have a great show for you today. I'm really proud of this conversation because it's a long time coming. You're going to love it. It's with a comic here in Los Angeles, OGLA comic, Katie Love. She's been on the show before, but she's just published a book. Two Tickets Paradise that Crew West Studio published, and we're so proud to bring it to the world. I want to talk to you about this in a sec, but before we do, be sure to go to notrealart.com and check out all the good, healthy stuff we got for you. Lots of great content up there, celebrating and elevating artists. Yeah, be sure to get in there. If you haven't subscribed to that uh, to the podcast, please do so, and uh, like this episode and comment. Share it with your friends on social. We really appreciate it. So I want to get into this episode because Katie Love came on the podcast, I don't know, two, three years ago as a comic, and she and I have developed a fantastic working relationship, producing comedy shows down here in LA under the Laugh Gallery brand. Uh, I think you guys have maybe heard me talk about it over over the show, you know, here and there. But Katie's story, life story is quite remarkable. She's been through a lot of trauma and a lot of craziness and she has come through it and is such a positive wonderful soul and she found healing in comedy and i'll tell you what you know for those of us who have had trauma we're going to find inspiration in her story because i tell you what if she can get through what she lived through and still stay positive and have have a heart of positivity and joy so can we and her life story is quite remarkable and so she had written a memoir and I read it and I absolutely knew that I wanted to publish it, you know, for her. So Crew S Studio, our company, took it on and uh, has now launched the book into the marketplace. You can download, buy and download the ebook on Amazon. Pretty soon the audiobook will be available and the print on demand book. But Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy is a memoir written by Katie Love and it talks about her journey to comedy after so much trauma as a child, eventually finding an escape hatch and healing in comedy. It's an incredibly inspiring story. And I just love Katie. She's fantastic, hilarious as hell, and has become a dear friend. 
And I encourage you guys to go buy the book. Go to Amazon, search for Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult to Comedy, a memoir by Katie Love. And if uh, you prefer audiobooks, stay tuned. More to come on that. And, of course, if you prefer print, uh, you'll be able to get the print version as well. So I'll include all that information in the show notes so you guys can uh, easily get to it all. But without further ado, let's get into this and talk to the one and only Katie Love about her new book, Two Tickets to Paradise. Here we go. Katie Love, welcome to the Not Real Art Podcast. I should say welcome back to the Not Real Art Podcast. Why, thank you, Scott Power, everybody, Scott Power. Well, I'll tell you what, a lot has happened <laughs> since you were on the podcast last. Um, but, you know, we wanted to have you back because Crew West Studio, the company that produces this podcast, just recently published your memoir, Two Tickets to Paradise from Cult of Comedy. And we just wanted to have you on the show to talk about this amazing, important story. That is your life, my friend. That is. It is my life. Publishing is now my life. Crew West is my life. Happy to be here, folks. Happy to be here. Wow. Crew West is your life. Woo! The things are getting <laughs> tough. <laughs> well, I tell you what, we are honored and privileged to have you as part of the Crew West uh, family. You and I have worked on uh, several projects now over the last few years together, but when you were generous enough to share with me your memoir, I think it was during the pandemic, I read it and was so moved by it and knew that it was a very important story to get out into the world. You know, I'm honored and privileged to be able to have had a very small part in helping you bring it to the world. And we should tell our listeners here that, you know, they can download the ebook from Amazon. It's available on Amazon right now. Audiobook uh, will be available in a matter of days. Yay! And then they'll be able to, of course, order it a good old print in print, good old print very soon. So, so you've got, you're covered. You got ebooks, audiobooks, print books. I mean, <laughs> if people don't read this thing, you know, they're probably. Did. Do you need me to come over and read to them? Because I had friends that said to me, we want you to come over and read to us. And I said, no, wait, I've already done that in the voiceover studio at VoiceOver LA in a caller, no less, because we haven't covered that part of the story yet. But I read approximately 76,000 words in a neck brace. So I'm proud of this work. Why was that, Katie Love? Why did you decide to wear a neck brace during your recording studio session? Because, you know, I was a cult survivor and an alcoholic, uh, suicidal parent survivor, and I'm used to chaos. And I thought that I would just put a collar on and then record the audible. No, but the day before, the, the night before that I was set to go into the studio to record the audible, I went into my bathroom and I tripped on a rug that had no rubber backing. I highly recommend that you get rid of all of those in your house. And I did a total like topple, like I didn't even brace myself with my my wrists. There was no bruising on my elbows, nothing. I literally stopped my fall with my head inside the bathtub. And that's what stopped, that's what stopped me from dying, I guess, was my own head, and I snapped my neck back and I fractured my C1. So essentially, I broke my neck and uh, had to call Scott, 
you, who was not happy about that at all. I was really scared. And he, I think you were more scared than I was. It's like, hey, I broke my neck. Won't be going into the studio tomorrow. Can you please let VoiceOver LA know? And then I think I had sent them a text or something, but I was, uh, yeah, in a collar for, God, 10 to 12 weeks. Okay, I got I got to stop you there because fucking A. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack in, in what you just shared here. Yeah. You left out also the part that we were producing a comedy event about that same yeah. time, and I wanted to cancel, and you said, no, the show must go on. I said, no, it doesn't have to go on. You said, yes, it must go on. And it went and on. And you I got- love telling that story. Yes. And you killed that night, by the way. Killed. Absolutely killed. Thank you very much. We should insert the video because we do have a video of me doing that show. Thank you, Hans, uh, who films all of our events for Laugh Gallery. Yes. And yeah, I remember you saying, well, of course, we're canceled the show. And the cancel- the show was literally at that point, it was like 10 days out, wasn't it? Or like two weeks out. I said, oh, no, we're not going to cancel the show. And I was delirious. And had already survived a heinous night in the ER with our wonderful medical system and was just impervious to pain and had no idea what I was up against. Because when you have an injury like that, you have all this swelling and that swelling kind of puts you in this weird fog, like along with the pain meds that you're like, you know, everything's fine. I feel fine. No, we're not canceling the show. And the swelling just like because it was because it it was it was so much that it kind of gave me this false sense of it's going to be all right as long as I don't move around a lot. So I didn't. I didn't move around a lot. And it's hilarious when I watch the tape that the way that I'm standing on stage is like a Frankenstein pose. Like I'm just standing so like I don't really move a lot. <laughs> but the show did go on. And then like weeks later, I was so out of it that I looked back on it and went, I can't believe I did that show. And I remember you saying, no, we're going to cancel. I was like, oh, Scott, we're not canceling the show. The show must go on. I mean, that's what vaudeville comedy is all about. And where's your sense of comedy grace and show business and all of this? I, I might have given you a lecture. I don't. I remember being kind of, you I'm know. too human. I'm too human. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> no. Yeah, you're too nice. No, no. To be clear, I am absolutely the person who will burn the fucking house down if that's what it takes to save to save somebody's life or or chew my leg off to get free or whatever it is. I was more than happy to cancel that fucking show so that you could be at home resting and recovering and healing. Because by the way, I want to be clear. I want to I want to reiterate something because we sort of got right right into this. I mean, people. Mm-hmm. Our, our dear friends and fans and, and audience members out there, you know, on the other end of this mic, let it be known, let it be heard, let it be clear that Katie broke her neck. She broke her neck. <laughs> she took a fall at home and broke her neck. She was minding her own business. She was going about her day, probably going to brush her teeth or do something we all do every day without thinking about it. And next thing you know, whammo, she breaks her neck and ends up in the hospital. So this is huge. This is big news. Just on a human level, anybody that breaks their neck deserves sympathy and compassion, (laughs) all this, all this stuff and good pain meds and good doctors. But you know, at the end of the day, Katie 
who by her own admission is a cunt tank. And yes. <laughs> That's my favorite nickname for myself, cunt tank. Forward, let's be clear. This is, you know, Katie, you told me that you were a CT. You, you tell I, us the story of- I of- told him this. This is what I told him, ladies and gentlemen. This is what I told him. I said, and ladies and gentlemen, everything in between and outside of that is there's two Katie's. There's Zen Katie, you know, where I might have lived in Santa Monica at one point and worn, I don't know, strapless dresses and, you know, rode a bike around town and collected flowers and had pretty sandals to match my cute dress and understated. Yeah, yeah. Understated. Just, you know, a nice Zen approach to life, somewhat approachable. So there's a lot of that in in me. And I, I really try to be like loving and golden rule and all that. And that lasts till about, I don't know, usually I can get that going till about 11 a.m. And then by about noon, cunt tank takes over and we're going to get some fucking things done. I don't want to hear your excuses. I'm tired of your whining and your shit. Everybody shut up. It's like the little engine that could only it's the little cunt tank that could. (laughs) Pushing shit out of the way and we're cunt tanking it all over town. It's like Karen, only I'm nicer than Karen which this is in my act. I'm going to use it. I'm going to plagiarize myself and say that I'm, I'm not Karen because I'm nicer. And I go to the manager because I I'm lonely. And I just, I want to talk to the manager because I'm lonely. I'm I'm Cassandra, the nicer, the nicer cousin of Karen. I'm a kid. Karen, Karen's come from a place of fear. You, my friend are not afraid. (laughs) I'm just like, listen, I'm lonely. I need you to talk to me. About your produce section, whatever it is, just talk to me. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you put your, you put, you kick, you know, you, 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 you kicked into, to, to cunt tank gear. <laughs> you just started plowing through not just a healing and, and getting the medical attention you needed, but you said, no, Scott, the AKA sourdough, you can, the show must go on. And you proceeded not just to perform stand up comedy. But then you went into the recording studio to record about 20 hours or more of audio, reading the book in a neck collar as you're healing with a broken neck. I mean, you truly are a tough, special, passionate, crazy motherfucker. I am. And it's why I'm single. I want (laughs) all the nice men to know out there that I do like nice men and that I am approachable. I'd like to repeat that again. Cunt tank is approachable. I do have a softer side. Anyway, still single. (laughs) Still single. Still single over here. No, I will tell you, though, that, you know, I did have to wait. Like, I needed to wait like a couple of, I think I waited a month before I went into the studio because when I speak normally, I'm moving my neck, I'm moving my shoulders, I'm moving my hands. And I knew that being in the studio because I'm not a professional voiceover actor, though I like to play one if anyone wants me. You are an friend. Still yeah. single, still want more work. But I had to be careful because I had to remember, like, I can't be moving around like that. I can't be flipping my neck around because I was in a soft collar. So first I was in this crazy, like the EMT collar that they give you when they're like, you know, okay, we're going to put you in this collar where you literally can't move. And so then I was in a soft collar after that, but I would like to go back and revisit that horrible night in the ER with the worst ER doctor on the planet. And they do exist, unfortunately. Thank you to all the wonderful nurses and doctors out there, but this person wasn't one. 
So then I went into the studio and I remember the guys in the studio said, okay, do you need a special chair or anything? And they had it all set up for me. And I had, I literally had this little seat that I sat in and I had the music, what do they call it? Music stand with my pages and everything. And I really couldn't move because it was so small between, between me fitting my big ass and my boobs and my belly and my ego inside this little booth. I couldn't move around anyway. So it ended up being a good thing because I had to be really, it was a tight fit is what I'm saying. <laughs> and uh, those guys were great. And I learned very quickly that the caller was my friend. It would remind me to focus on the words in front of me. And I think it really helped me not get out of control with my own story. Like I was so excited that I could picture myself over reading it in a world, you know, <laughs> I think that in some ways it, it kind of helped me, but I don't know. I think the hardest thing about that time was that, you know, there are parts of the book that are there, you know, it's the dark side of the comedy. It's the tragedy part of the comedy tragedy. And when you're reading that in an audible, you know, you're recording it for the audible, it's confronting because you are in that place in your life. You're in that kid and you're reading from that place. So it's all the emotions are coming from your core as a child. It's different than writing it. I wrote that way and dropped the reader into the story, but reading it from that place. And so I would take breaks and everything. And I would, you know, if I was doing my job properly, then I would have all the guys in the studio crying, I hoped, and then laughing. I really wanted to abuse them and make sure that they were being properly abused while, while I was reading. But then what would happen is I would go home and I couldn't like drive myself to Malibu or go on some trail somewhere and get all the demons out. I would have to go home and I would sit in a corner of my couch. I would Uber at home. Thank you, Crew West Studio, for Ubering me all over the place. And I would sit straight up and I would watch the most ridiculous content I could find on Netflix or whatever I was watching, who, whatever, just comedy, ridiculous plot lines. Ask me anything about a show. I probably know the answer, but nothing about the real world or politics. And I sat like that in that corner of a couch for literally 12 weeks. And that was my job. Like just get better and do the audible. Those are my two things that I had to do. And I feel like I did them, but I have to say that that collar, it was a lot. I had to sleep in it. It became my friend. It was like so disgustingly dirty. And I got a second one and a friend of mine, she threw it away behind my back. She's like, this is disgusting. I was <laughs> like, where's my other collar? It's softer. She said, I threw that away. <laughs> and Burned it. It was like my Linus blanket for three months. So that's my story about the collar. But happy to be here, folks. Happy to be here. Well, okay. So there's just, I mean, there's so much here. I mean, we, we have to <laughs> try to parse it all out a little bit for our, our listeners here. And, you know, but I want to I wanna start this conversation really with a public service announcement, a message. If people haven't already picked up on this, before we get into the compelling book that you've written, we want to encourage everybody listening to this to go home gather up all of your throw rugs and <laughs> fucking burn them. Just get them yeah. out of your house. 
because throw rugs are the devil. Throw rugs are the enemy. They literally will fucking kill you. Katie was so lucky on so many levels that she only and had a clean break at that. But that same week, actually, my mother, who's 77, had told me a story of her friend who's, you know, I don't know, late 60s, early 70s, great health, no problems, totally mobile, full of energy, tripped on her throw rug in her house and literally fucked herself up so bad. And she's been in and out of the hospital and she's had all these issues and all because of this goddamn throw rug. And like <laughs> we're literally within, within a week, I heard of two people yourself and my mom's friend who damn near killed themselves with throw rugs. So I am now, to me, throw rugs are arch enemy number one. We have to spread they the word. They have to have a rubber backing, Nick. You can't put a throw rug all willy nilly on a floor because you're going to get caught up in it at some point. It has to not move. That has a little bit of risk to it, but a throw rug with no rubber backing, it's just, you're just like, yeah, the rug ties the room together, man. And yes, I am a big Lebowski fan. but <laughs> no, it's not worth it. It's not worth it, man. You're way over your head. You're way over your fucking head, Donnie. Get rid of the rug. Your your obituary cause of death. Yeah. Throw rug. I mean, is that how you want to go out, people? I don't think so. No. no. So first things first. Let's burn our throw rugs. Let's get. Let's rid ourselves of our throw rugs so that we can walk around safely and and soundly and with peace of mind and confidence. Okay. Public service announcement done. We are so grateful, Katie, and, and I know you are too, that you are here with us and that you are healed now. It's like a fucking miracle. You, you, you're like a heel tank. You might be a cunt tank, but you're like a heel tank. You <laughs> I'm just still so I'm in PT like and I'm so, no. I'm kind of a Karen, I am kind of a Karen at PT. So physical therapy, there was a guy that really knows how to do a massage. And let's face it, folks, I haven't been touched since before COVID. So if I'm going to get a massage through my insurance, I sure want a good one, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was gone one day and this other girl tried to do this massage where she was like, just kind of pushing on nerves through my shirt. I was like, oh no, where's the other guy? Is he coming back? Is he, is he off today? I need to speak to the manager. Uh, No, I didn't say that. But I asked for him, like I talked to him when I saw him again. I'm like, I really need only you to be my masseuse in here because I get agitated with the other guy. And I couldn't even believe that was coming out of my mouth. I'm like, so I'm out of the collar. I'm in PT. Now I've become a Karen and I'm demanding, you know, certain privileges here in this PT world, which I have to tell you is so weird. You walk in and it's all these like broken people. And while you're sitting there doing your exercises and they have all these like kind of mundane exercises that you have to do for your neck, like looking up and your mouth is open and then you close your mouth and you go, wow, I never knew I used these neck muscles. And you know, sorry to say right now, my fellatio days are over. You know, this is, this is not a family show. So I feel like I can say that <laughs> you find out what muscles you actually use for different things. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. Okay, so I'm sitting and I'm sitting there doing these these weird neck things, these exercises that I have to do. And I'm watching these people and the specifics of these exercises, like one lady has to stand up straight, put her arm out, touch her bicep and roll it around. And she has to do that 30 times. And then I look over to my right and I've got this lady who's got some 
something happening with their foot and they've got some device that comes out and they rub stuff all over her foot and they have these deep discussions. And then I've got this, it's like a room full of these broken people. And we're all just like in this room. And then they go around as if we're in like this kindergarten thing. It's like, Katie, how you doing on your exercises? And they go around to each person. And sometimes they forget you and you're just supposed to go on to the next exercise by yourself. But I don't like that. I like it when they come over and tell me, are you ready to do the YMCA? Okay, we're going to do a Y. We're going to do an M. We're going to do a C. And it is, I've reverted to some kind of childhood, like I need attention. And I'm, I'm there with my people who are all as broken as I am. And right. so this is my new tribe in this big room of broken people. It is a very strange scene. Fun fact, and this show isn't about me, but I'm going to make it about me for a second. I like it. Let's make it about you. Scott Power, everybody. Fun fact, when I was in high school, uh, my junior year of high school, I actually got hired as a physical therapy aide, oh. a PT aide. I worked in a, a couple hospitals. There was a company that hired me, and they would staff physical and occupational therapy departments like around the area in the various hospitals. And so for about three years, I worked as a physical and occupational therapy aide my junior year, senior year, and then my freshman year in college. And it was amazing because I only like had to work like on the weekends and it would like, I, I got made like, they paid me like 15 bucks an hour, which in like 1986, 87 was like a ton of money. And I could work for a few hours on the weekends and like, you know, make good money. But Yes, every day I would have to go in there and I'd see these poor fucking people who were just beat up. And, you know, and, and and I remember just, you know, on one hand being like horrified, but on the other hand being inspired because, you know, it's tough, tough, tough stuff. People it just is. getting through it. It is. And it's like, it's it's inspiring too, because you see people get better, but it's like there are movements I literally cannot do. Like there's a movement. And while I was sitting there doing these exercises, there was some cheerleader thing on the television. And these girls are coming out and they're like pretty young. They're like what are cheerleaders, like 18 young, right? The kind of young where you can still snap your neck any way you want. And they come in with the long ponytails and they're like snap, snap, right? Yeah. And yeah. I cannot, like if I'm sitting straight up and I go to turn my ear, there's an exercise ear to shoulder. It doesn't really do it. Like, I cannot do that neck maneuver. And so I swore at the television, forgetting my place and that other people were in the room. And I was like, fuck those cheerleaders. I can't do your family show, is what I'm saying. <laughs> we never know when I might blurt something. And that's why I'm in comedy. Is this a family show? This is a family show. <laughs> Family's the other It's a family episode. show called Cunt Tank, and we just got canceled. Cunt Tank. By the way, I just, cunttank.com. I mean, you know, like what, like I want to see. Our, now that you said that, though, we have to go buy it. We have to buy that before we're even done with the show. I mean, do it right now while you're on the computer. We need Cunt Tank. Cunttank.com, and we're going to sell children's books. Let me see if this is even available. Hold on, Cunt Tank. It's the little Cunt Tank that could. Little, the little and it's an adult children's yeah. book. Contact.com is available for nine dollars. Buy it. We need it. Okay, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna put it in the apple or in the uh, cart. <laughs> Contact.com. I mean, I'm gonna have one of my artist friends render uh, what a contact actually looks like. How hilarious that'd be! We'll make stickers and that's buttons. gonna be my next book. Is contact. 
The little sunshine <laughs> stick foot. I'll publish that. I'll publish that. And, yeah, and it's going to be just stories of people that they fucking contacted it, man. They pushed through because I think it was Sally Fields that said she's never, I think it was her that said, well, I'll check on it, but that she said that the word cunt never offends her because the cunt is the strongest thing in the world. It pushes out life and people that get upset about the word cunt, well, they just, they have a problem. I was like, go Sally. Pretty sure it's Sally Fields, but I, I might be wrong. Well, and it's also because if you go to Britain, they throw the cunt word around all the time, you know, and it's just like, That's oh, right. don't be a cunt, don't be. And I worked for a British guy in Chicago who had come and he kept offending all of our female uh, employees. <laughs> <laughs> he comes to me once he goes, and he said, well, why is it, why is it the problem that I say, the, I say cunt? I mean, it's not a, it's just a, not an offense. It's just a, you know, and I find <laughs> Like this, you know, when in Rome, my friend. And they're like, you know what? You're our friend. You can be a part of our tribe. Just yeah. said our favorite word. Well, but it, it kind of started with that. I had a joke where I was like really irritated about these like quasi sincere. I'm so spiritual, you know, Buddha people that are just like, watch what you think and watch what you say. And they get all militant about how you're going to have this mindset for success. And they kind of scream at you. And they're always the same people that are, they wear yoga pants to Ralph's and they smell of patchouli oil and everything has something to do with the tide and the moons. And this is their spirituality and they're annoying. I mean, they're annoying. And so I started calling them Buddha cunts. And then I realized that's not very nice. Well, what is my name for myself? If they're a Buddha cunt, then what does that make me? And I'm like, oh, I'm a cunt tank. So that's even worse than a Buddha cunt. But at least I'm really like, you know what you're dealing with. Like when I show up and something hasn't gotten done, like, you know, it's just not happening and there's no transparency and no customer service. Buddha cunt is not going to fix it. Cunt tank is who you want. So I'm sorry, but if you have a customer service issue, maybe that's what the site should be. Buddha cunt, we fix your customer service issues. And I get on the phone. And I'm just like, listen, man, don't tell me not to worry because we need this fixed today. So it's not Karen. It's just no nonsense. Let's get it done. Contact it. I, I like it. It's that it's that moxie, right? It's that force of nature that uh, the world needs right now. You know, contact. I love it. Anyway, this is why I'm alone and have no friends, but really happy to be here with you. I have one friend. His name is Scott. More to the point. More to the point, Katie Love, it's a good segue, you know, into the book because your cunt tankness has been carefully honed almost by necessity over your life over several decades because you've been through it, my friend. Your life, uh, as many people uh, in this world listening to this today, we all have various trauma in our life. You have had more than your fair share of trauma. And you have found healing in comedy, as people listening can probably tell by now. And if, and if, <laughs> if they're not, if they can't tell they're not listening. But the point, <laughs> is, the point is, is that this brassy attitude of yours, this tough spirit is well-earned. You know, your story, which is a very human one, would be a hard one to tell. But, you know, because you have over the years acquired your not 10,000 hours, but probably more like 20 or 30,000 hours of writing expertise, you have been able to pin a memoir 
of your life, uh, taking a reader through your life and through the traumas you've seen and, and experienced firsthand all the way through to your career as a comic. So, you know, and I've read the book, as I said earlier, and I tell you what, it's just so compelling and emotional and moving. But it's uh, let, 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 let the listeners know it's 80% funny, <laughs> 20% drama, if you will. But hats off to you, my dear friend, for accomplishing what had to be a very, very difficult uh, book to write. Well, thank you. I felt like, you know, I was writing other things. I wrote a book when I was in sales and working at the LA Times. I wrote a book called Cubicide, a novel. And that was kind of autobiographical about my, the kind of split that happens, I think, for artists where you're doing your art, but you have to make a living. So you're trying to find something that you can bridge the gap to not want to like just scream and you need to pay your bills. And so you're just trying to bridge the gap to make it through and, and live a, a decent monetized life, right? Until you can figure out how to pay your bills through your art. So I wrote that first. But at the same time, I was, I started writing this play called Lingering. And Lingering was about that moment that someone makes the decision that they don't want to be on the planet anymore and what happens in the momentum of that decision. And I started writing this and playing with, playing with this, this idea that once you make that decision and you become, you know, you start walking down this, this tunnel. Uh, and in your suicidal that some people would say this is you know the tunnel where you you start getting tunnel vision you start losing your hold on why you're on the planet what your purpose is what you're doing here and you know the darkness kind of takes over so i learned that in an early age because my mother was suicidal for most of you know my young life she died when i was nine and she had a couple of suicide attempts so I was always really interested in what happens in the suicidal mind, what happens the, in the beat before that. Why would someone want to do something that, that is so final like that? If it's the ultimate fuck you, then what is, where is the gratification in it? And I started studying and, and I realized I don't know anything about playwriting. I was a, a trained screenwriter, but I didn't feel like that would hold it either. And then when my mother died and when she finally did commit suicide, I went to go live with my sister who had just started studying with Jehovah's Witnesses. And literally a week before, a week after she died, they came to me with this picture book of all these animals lazing by a river and everybody was picking fruit and everybody looked really excited. And they said, Katie, this is paradise. Do you want to see mom again? Now, what nine-year-old who's just found their mother she shot herself. What nine-year-old who's found their suicidal, their mother's committed suicide is not going to say yes to that. This is a, an opportunity to see your parent happy again. And so it was, you know, po the question was posed, do you want to see mom again, happy and living, you know, forever in paradise? And then they pointed to this picture and I saw these, you know, animals panting, looking hot in the sun. And I was like, oh, this is, this is paradise. They're picking fruit in paradise, which is the first chapter of the book. And this this sounds great. And of course I said yes. And then, thus began this journey into trying to be this perfect Jehovah's Witness to meet up with my mother again. So the title, Two Tickets to Paradise, 
is really, it encapsulates our relationship, really, of me trying to get to her again with my my promise of this paradise and getting her to be happy again, which all throughout my childhood was about me like doing the comedy and and reading her the stories that I would write and trying to get her in a happy place and all of that busy work that I was always doing, trying to get my mother to happiness. Now there was this God, Jehovah, who was going to come in and turn the earth into a paradise, fruity, fluffy park, and we could just be happy there together. And so that's how the whole thing started. That's how I became part of this, this religion which I now define as a cult because anything that separates you from your family and tells you you cannot be with your family if they're not your religion, I define as a cult. And so that is how the title came together, Two Tickets to Paradise, from cult to comedy. When I gave it to Scott, when I gave it to you, and I I had just formed this habit where I wanted to prepare people that my way of writing, like my natural way of writing is comedy tragedy. I can't even not do it. It's even hard for me to do it. Like when I write somebody's like, I don't know, like they're like, I've written a lot of web content. Like I'll get into this comedy tragedy thing in their own business where I have to like temper myself and go through and edit things. I naturally write comedy tragedy. And when I handed it to you, I had been saying it for a while. It probably sounded very robotic. I remember handing it to you and going, this is 80% funny and 20% not so funny, not funny at all. <laughs> that was like the only way I could describe it. And so from there on, we described it, we gave it that description that, and it still fits today. I still say it. So I just thank you for taking it on because I think it's a, it is an important story and I'm so proud to tell it. Yeah, and it's important for a lot of reasons, and I and I want to say, um, you know, people that are that are reading it now and starting to comment on it on Amazon or what have you, that humanity, well, that sense of humor shines through, and it makes people are really recognizing that, and that's resonating, and people are talking about it because it's sort of unfathomable to me and to others, right, that someone, anyone, and in this case, you would experience the amount of tragedy and trauma, but still find a light and still find humor, uh, or at least be able to find a way to write about it in a way that was accessible, approachable, but loving somehow. I mean, the word is like, it's a loving, most people, most mere mortals would be just so bitter and jaded and cynical and angry that a book like that would come across in that way. But but somehow you have, and this is a testament to you as a human, but somehow you find light and you find humor and you make this traumatic story almost a joy to read, which is like a very bizarre thing to say. Yeah, I hope so, because, you know, we all have trauma, but it's like there's the thing that happened and then there's the thing that we're going to say about what happened and what we're going to make it mean. And I just feel like we get to be the God of our own story. And when you're a memorist or you're writing your story, you have to tell the truth and you have to say it through the lens, only your lens. You can't tell anybody else's story. And when I think back about just my childhood, there's so many funny things that as a child, you know, and you're questioning the Bible going, what? And I came from, my mother was not religious and she was a musician and she banged out songs on our baby grand piano and our little 
apartment that we shared in Oakland, California, where I grew up in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. We did not say prayers. We didn't, you know, that was not our life. And to be taken out of this environment where I was really a parent to a suicidal, alcoholic parent of, of my mother, and to be whisked into, from that into religion was crazy. And it was such a shock. So one of my favorite chapters in the book is called Barnabas and the Girl in the Red Poncho. And then the follow-up to that, Goodbye, Dark Shadows. And it was, you know, in the early 70s. And so the original Dark Shadows was all the rage. And I would go home from school every night or every day at four o'clock and watch Dark Shadows. And it was full of this like <laughs> sex and carnage. And at the same time, I would be watching like The Lucy Show and I loved Jerry Lewis. So I loved comedy and I really, really loved the dark tragedy and weirdness of Dark Shadows. So my mother has died. I'm now living with my sister and her family. And she has a toddler, my niece, Denise, who's seven years younger than me. So at the time she was two years old and she's pregnant with her, her son, uh, Danny. And I'm in this household. I say, I want to watch television. And my mom's been dead. I think our, our mother was dead. I don't know for a week or, or less than that. And I say, I want to watch Dark Shadows. And she says, well, what's that? And I said, you're going to love it. It's a story about vampires. And I mean, I was so connected to this show and I was such the little militant nurse for my mother that sometimes I would have to call in sick for my mother because she was too drunk to go to work. So I would call the her office. I think she worked for an insurance company. And I'd be like, my mom can't come in today. She's been bit by a, a vampire. Thank you. And just <laughs> hang up. And I was really into this show. Like, it was just like a part of me, this dark shadows, this like, yeah, this posse of women. And they just were like, they had to invite them in and then they could be bitten. And it's like, had a, he had like a tribe and they were always wandering around screaming his name and white nightgowns. And it was just dank and, and scary and crazy. And all the kids loved it. And so I sat, I sat down to watch this and my sister was behind me on the couch folding laundry. And I, I could hear her like gasping behind me. And I thought to myself, here's this adult that's now she's my legal guardian and I'm going to be in this big religion and, you know, and, and she's my boss now, but she's afraid of vampires and I'm not. So there were these really funny little pockets like that, that I talked about in the book that are coming of age and they are. There's a commonality to that in all of our stories. We all have these coming of age stories that that kind of knit the comedy and tragedy of our lives together. And they sew a quilt, they form a quilt of kind of an understanding and a platform which we can launch off and try to have some kind of semblance of normalcy at some point in our lives, right? So when I wrote about that, I was always so deep in the moment of that experience, knowing what was coming next. And there's a lot of darkness in a religion that demands that kind of allegiance. It's impossible for people to live to that kind of perfectionism. And the older that I got, the more my creativity blossomed, the more I questioned. I've been a writer since I was a kid and I wasn't having it. And so I really took, tried to take the reader through the steps of me from a 
tween to a teen to a young woman to the girl that got married at 16 to one of the elder's sons to the girl that got a divorce and you weren't supposed to do that to, you know, and within all of those years in my early years as a teen being abused at a household where I went to go live for a year was not what I had planned uh, by one of their elders in the congregation and how I had to get through that and come home tarnished and not tell anybody this terrible secret and how I held on to it for for a good 20 years and finally divulged it, what I did to get through that trauma and then leaving the religion, the hilarity and severity of, and I did not rhyme those on purpose, of leaving the religion was so odd and funny because the entire carrot that Jehovah's Witnesses hang in front of your face is that you will live in paradise earth for eternal life, happy and healthy and living out the, your days, I guess, for the rest of your life that never ends, everlasting life with lots of fruit. I don't know what else they do other than pick fruit in paradise, but that is the promise, right? And no sickness, no strife, just a lot of Stepford wife living in paradise. And I left my religion, literally left my religion on a sandy beach in the Bahamas at a resort called Paradise Island. I never realized how funny that was until I went to go write this book and I got to the chapter and I was like, oh my God, I left my religion on Paradise Island. It was like, how did I not? So the comedy sort of like, as I wrote the book, it sort of just took over like, and it came out so naturally. All I wanted to do was take the reader on a journey. It's almost like a love story, a mother-daughter love story in so many ways, because I just wanted to make my mother happy again. I just wanted to be with her again. I didn't feel our story was ready to end. You know, and the older that I got and the more I learned about depression and suicide and she probably had bipolar disease. I don't know. But in those days, people went undiagnosed and they, they medicated themselves. And that's what my mother did. And, you know, I just saw so much light in that story. And I think it was that light. And it was really the thing that drove me to stay in it so long. Because you lose every person you know, every relative that's a Jehovah's Witness, every single friend you've ever had. If you are baptized as a Jehovah's Witness and you leave, whether you've been abused or not, they don't care. Whatever the reason is, when you say quits, you're done. Whether you, it's something that they've done wrong or you're out of there. No one talks to you again. You lose every single person you know in one day. I went from a community of people and friends that I knew for a good part of my life to people looking right past me like I was a contagion. And the and there's even humor in that because the hilarious part of that is I was living in this little cul-de-sac and and the whatever reason the owner of all these little houses in Vacaville, California where I where I was when I left the religion. They were he only rented to Jehovah's Witnesses, so it was like this I called it the cul-de-sac in the book. I called it cul-de-sac because and I would have these people that kind of spying on me because I was like the single sister on the cul-de-sac. And they were always checking to make sure if I was up to par and going to the meetings. And 
And it was really funny when I left because I would have a com- I would have a conversation with someone the day before, and then the next day after the announcement had been made that I had been disfellowshipped from the religion and let go of this religion, that now I was like this contagion. And I mean, people they closed their curtains, they looked past me, they looked over my head, they wouldn't speak to me. It's a really weird, rootless feeling, and I have to say it's fucking devastating it is you know now we have we i read these these i just i i mean it's heart-wrenching i read things you know i'm on a couple of feeds on twitter and and facebook and it's heart-wrenching to see people lose their family because they don't want to be in a religion anymore and you know religion and spirituality i've also talked about in the book those are two very different things but to lose your family because you don't want to sit in a kingdom hall and face this rhetoric that you no longer agree with. They rip apart families that it is heart wrenching to see these people are still years later. They are still trying to heal. And I really feel like, like I was humbled when I joined a few of these groups and this was after I wrote the book. I was really humbled by seeing that Hey, if I can help one person find some laughter in this thing, I just hope that that's a bridge they can walk across to some more healing. Because if they believe in God, that's not God. That's man-made rhetoric. I just feel really proud of this work because comedy tragedy is what I know and what I've had to live through. But it's also the thing that healed me. And without a sense of humor, even if I didn't do comedy as an outlet, I don't know where I would be. I really, really don't. And I see it in the and hear it in the faces in the in the posts of these people that are still going through it. My heart goes out to them and I hope that I hope I hope they pick up the book and I hope they have some laughs because hey, it's all a bunch of shit. <laughs> it's, it's a made up doctrine by a guy named Charles T. Russell from, you know, the early nineteen hundreds or late eighteen hundreds. Who cares? You know, it's a false, what I would call the false, a false prophet. And now it's based on, I don't know, six or eight dudes in suits sitting around, you know, at the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society telling people how to live their lives and who they can love and who they cannot and who is worthy of love and who is not worthy of love. And, you know, I like to talk about this because I think it's really important. And when I went to go write this, it seems really simple when you read it, but to me, as it was a really big deal. But the dedication page says, for the truth seekers and the misfits. And in the, in the Jehovah's Witness religion, they call their doctrine the truth. So they're always preaching the truth, the truth, the truth shall, shall, shall set you free. The truth, 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 and they have a little blue book, the truth, this, that, whatever. So it's always this, you know, this constant preaching about the truth. When you free yourself of it because you realize what you thought was the truth is not, you become a truth seeker. And if you speak up against it, you're considered an apostate. And now you're just a real dirty scum. (laughs) There's disfellowship, and then there's the apostate. So I guess I would be defined as the apostate. But I'm really trying to, I hope, tell my story. And I hope I can mend a few broken hearts with some comedy. But then I said, you know, for the truth seekers and misfits. And the thing about 
losing everyone you know in a day and losing your religion, what does it cause? You lose everything. I only had my brother who was never in the religion, my niece who had left years prior and and she was never baptized. So she just chose to leave the religion. And I had, you know, one or two friends and that was it. Those were my only people. And I became this rootless, like weird, awkward misfit. And I had to embrace it. And what better world to embrace it than comedy? And that's why that dedication page for the truth seekers and misfits, it just really hit me as soon as I wrote it. And I just stared at the words across the screen. I was like, yeah, this, this is who this book is for. And I just hope, I hope the book finds that audience and, and more and that we have a laugh and that, you know, nothing's ever 100% funny and nothing's ever 100% the end and tragic. We're all a beautiful mix of those two things. And I just think that, I just think, read the book, have some fun with it, have some laughs and hug an extra hope's witness, right? <laughs> hug somebody that left the religion. That's my soapbox. You know, there are a lot of people, I'm sure, listening who have their own kind of experience around truth seeking. You know, we're all on our truth is, right? You know, somebody said we're spirits having a human experience. Um, you know, we're all on a spiritual journey. And it does take a lot. It takes, I mean, trauma aside, right? I mean, you know, even if you had had a fine experience in the. <laughs> In the in the religion, you know, on a certain level, I mean, you're, you know, very intelligent human being who is discerning, has a very discerning mind. So it's, you know, very conceivable that you would have gotten to a point where you said, you know, wait a minute, I, I don't really believe this, or I think differently, and you start to critique or, you know, your own kind of belief system, and maybe you would have left the religion anyway, just because, you know, you it, it didn't it didn't feel true or real. And I think a lot of people, you know, they, you hear Catholics talk a lot about that, right? Like they're, they're reformed yeah. Catholics, you know, yeah. um, and it, it it takes so much courage to walk away because it fe- it's existential, right? Especially if you're young, like if you're young and you're told, you know, I was raised, you know, in a, in a pretty devout Pentecostal, you know, my grandfather was a right. pastor. And so I remember from the day I, I mean, from the day I was born, I was on the church pew hearing about heaven and hell. And, you know, if you weren't saved, you'd go to hell. Now, as a three year, as a two, three, four year old (laughs) thinking about that, you know, I mean, that's, that's pretty fucking nuts, man. You know what I mean? Like, that's (laughs) like abuse on a certain level, psychological warfare. It is. It is. So when I, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I didn't endure the abuse and things that that you did, but you get to a point where you realize, like, wait a minute, this isn't for me. I got to lose my religion, leave my religion, and strike out on my own. And you know, it takes a lot of courage to tell your family that you don't believe like they do. And a lot of people just don't ever go there, and they don't go there maybe because maybe well maybe because they they're happy where they're at. Maybe they don't go there because they don't have the courage to tell their mom or their dad that they believe something else. So anyway, for the true seekers and misfits, I mean, for those people who think for themselves, right. For Mm -hmm. the people who have courage of their convictions, Mm -hmm. 
stand up to the status quo and and say, you know, not for me. I'm on my own journey and I'm going to find, you know, and it was funny. I, I was with somebody the other day who asked me about my faith. This person is a pretty conservative person from the Midwest and a Catholic guy, actually. Yeah. And we had had a few, we had a few drinks and I sort of broke my rule. You know, we were having fun laughing and then he sort of asked me this and I sort of broke my rule because my rule is, you know what? It's a personal thing. I don't talk about it, you know, because he was, because yeah. he said, well, what's your faith? You know, what, what kind of, you know, what? And I sort of popped off, well, I'm a born again pagan. I mean, that's what I, that's what I always say. <laughs> oh, that's fabulous. That's right? Yeah. And, you know, and it was so funny because I guess I forgot who I was talking to because, or maybe I didn't even realize just like how devout of a Catholic he was. And, and he, he was really serious, although we had had a few drinks at us. I mean, he was like asking me a serious question. And then I sort of said this and he got this like look on his face. Like I had just offended him at his core or, <laughs> you know, it was so interesting and, you know, and, and it, because it is a personal thing and that's what's so fascinating about faith is this evangel, you know, evangelizing or proselytizing or whatever the fuck it's called where people are trying to convert you because they have, they think they've got the one answer for all of humanity. I mean, the yeah. height of arrogance, right? <laughs> it's like, and then, you know, so, so anyway, so I, I, you know, I just, I think the dedication of your book to true seekers and misfits, I mean, I mean, I hope who people who read it take heart and are inspired and get, take, get courage from reading your story because standing up for oneself is tough enough in the best of circumstances, let alone when you're dealing with the trauma and the heartbreak that you dealt with. And then for you to have the courage, and the fortitude and the sense of, of integrity to yourself and honoring yourself to be able to stand up and walk away. It was a lot. It was a lot of loss at the time. And I worry about the people that, you know, are doing this without a foundation. And I'm just, you know, when I did it, there was no social media group to join. And I'm glad that I found a couple of these groups. But boy, I can't be in those groups for longer than 45 minutes before I start getting choked up. And then I realize, you know, I wrote the book without even thinking about those groups. I wrote the book from my own story. And I wrote it there's a saying always on my mind, and I think it's the rule that I live by in writing. We do not write in order to be understood. We write in order to understand. C. Day Lewis. I was really writing to understand. Like I said, I had started trying to understand my mother's illness, suicide, abandonment, the religion, everything I was doing. And I found that I wasn't able to tell the story the way that it was it needed to unfold. I wasn't understanding. And the more that I started working on the memoir, the, I realized what my story, that my story had a purpose and that wasn't, it was writing for me to understand, but it wasn't just for me either. There came a point where I realized that this is a really important story because we are the God of our own story. We are the deliberate creators in our lives. So what does that say if I don't share my story after everything that I went through and everything that I learned? I could not do it. So I was just really happy to find you. I had been through other agents, publishers, what have you. And it was a really great day when you said, I'm going to publish this book. And I said, yay, thank you. I felt like that was my big lucky day. 
Thank you, Scott Power. Thank you, Crew West. Well, you are welcome, and we are honored and grateful. And on a personal, selfish note, I mean, I one of the toughest days of my life was when I looked, you know, my mother in the eye and told her that I wasn't going to go to seminary like she told me that she expected of me to follow my grandfather's footsteps. And, you know, and I had to tell her that I didn't believe uh, anymore. You know, I was 16. I lost my religion at 16. And, you know, at one point I was very devout. But anyway, the point is, is that your story resonated with me because, you know, people just need to hear your story because I think that it will empower them and give them courage to seek that truth and and be the misfit that <laughs> that they can. Yeah, and it's like, you know, there's no harm in being a misfit, right? It's like, and even to this day, sometimes I'll walk into a club, a comedy club, and I'll look around, and I'll know a lot of people. I've been, you know, in and out of the business for 25, 30 years. <laughs> I'll look around and go, oh, this is, this, mm, I don't know. And I'll still feel that. I'll still feel like that kid that just lost her mother and then later lost her religion, you know, still trying to find my way. And I realized that there's there's actually a power in that. There's a power in saying, yeah, I'm a misfit. I'm just going to claim it. I'm not here to be like everybody else. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't need all the answers, especially in religion. I, I talked about that at the end. I was like, I don't need all the answers in religion. I don't think any of us do. I don't want to know. I don't. That's a key point, I think. I don't need all the answers. And so people will say, do you believe in God? And I'll be like, eh, yes and no. <laughs> like, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? And I'm like, mm. as a writer, the editor failed because there's too many passages that cancel each other out. So maybe not. And, you know, we can argue about it, but it's okay. It doesn't make me afraid to have a difference of opinion around religion anymore because I have freed myself from having this like elitism attitude that I've got all the fucking answers and I'm going to show you how to usher yourself into paradise and escape some crazy Armageddon thing. They preach the end of the world all the time. And I have this one chapter that I love in the book called the end of the world, sort of. <laughs> and it's about how they predicted the end of the world several times until then they were just like, no man knows the day or hour. Oh, okay. That's what we believe now. Okay. Cause in the seventies, I had to say goodbye to my brother who was not a Jehovah's witness and he was on his way. Uh, he was in the air force and he was on his way to Korea to serve our, our country. And, uh, I was told to say goodbye to him that I probably wouldn't see him again. And I think it was like, I don't know, 1974 or something. Wow. And, it was such a horrible experience. I was just like, can't he come into the religion? How can we convince him? I don't want to say goodbye to him. Just a lot of nonsense like that. And here we are. It's 2022. And we're still here, folks. And I pulled my head out of a bathtub with a C1 fracture. And I'm still here. Not trying to taunt the demons. I'm just saying, I'm still here. I'm still here. Cunt tank is still, is still rolling up the hill, is what I'm saying. Don't taunt the throw rugs, Katie, please. Um, Katie Love, a.k.a. Cunt Tank, I am. <laughs> I am so grateful to not just call you my colleague, but call you my friend. And the future is bright um, for Thank you. Thank you. And this, I can't wait to see where this book goes. It's such an important story. And I'm honored to have played a small part in bringing it to the world. 
Thank you for being you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. We'll sign off now and we'll uh, tell more jokes. We'll get, <laughs> okay. we'll get working on that next book. And I think everybody knows what it's called. Okay, then. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. <laughs> Thank you, Katie Love. Katie Love, everybody. Okay. Lovely, lovely. Scott Power, everybody. Come on. <laughs> See you later. Thanks for listening to the Not Real Art Podcast. Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share with your friends on social. Also, remember to subscribe so you get all of our new episodes. Not Real Art is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Our theme music was created by Ricky Peugeot and Desi Deloro from the band Parlor Social. Not Real Art is created by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Thanks again for listening to Not Real Art. We'll be back soon with another inspiring episode celebrating creative culture and the artists who make it.